Chapter Nine, Part Four of the Pit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. She had sent him away the first time, and he had gone without a murmur, only to come back loyal as ever, silent, watchful, sympathetic. His love for her deeper, stronger than before, and as always timely, bringing to her a companionship at the moment of all others when she was most alone. Now she had driven him from her again, and this time she very well knew it was to be forever. She had shut the door upon his great love. Laura stirred abruptly in her place, adjusting her hair with nervous fingers. And last of all, it had been Jadwin, her husband. She rose and went to the window, and stood there a long moment, looking off into the night over the park. It was warm and very still. A few carriage lamps glimpsed among the trees like fireflies. Along the walks and upon the benches she could see the glow of white dresses and could catch the sound of laughter. Far off somewhere in the shrubbery she thought she heard a band playing. To the northeast lay the lake, shimmering under the moon, dotted here and there with the colored lights of steamers. She turned back into the room. The great house was still. From all its suites of rooms, its corridors, galleries, and hallways, there came no sound. There was no one upon the same floor as herself. She had read all her books. It was too late to go out, and there was no one to go with. To go to bed was ridiculous. She was never more wakeful, never more alive, never more ready to be amused, diverted, entertained. She thought of the organ and, descending to the art gallery, played Bach, Palestrina, and Stainer for an hour. Then suddenly she started from the console with a sharp, impatient movement of her head. "'Why do I play this stupid music?' she exclaimed. She called a servant and asked, "'Has Mr. Jadwin come in yet?' "'Mr. Gretry just this minute telephoned that Mr. Jadwin would not be home tonight.' When the servant had gone out, Laura, her lips compressed, flung up her head, her hands shut to hard fists, her eye flashed, rigid, erect in the middle of the room, her arms folded, she uttered a smothered exclamation over and over again under her breath. All at once anger mastered her, anger and a certain defiant recklessness, an abrupt spirit of revolt. She straightened herself suddenly as one who takes a decision. Then, swiftly, she went out of the art gallery, and, crossing the hallway, entered the library and opened a great writing desk that stood in a recess under a small stained window. She pulled the sheets of notepaper toward her and wrote a short letter, directing the envelope to Sheldon Corthell, the Fine Arts Building, Michigan Avenue. "'Call a messenger,' she said to the servant who answered her ring, "'and have him take or, or send him in here when he comes.' She rested the letter against the inkstand and leaned back in her chair, looking at it, her fingers plucking swiftly at the lace of her dress. Her head was in a whirl, a confusion of thoughts, impulses, desires, half-formed resolves, half-named regrets, swarmed and spun about her. She felt as though she had all at once taken a leap, a leap which had landed her in a place whence she could see a new and terrible country an unfamiliar place, terrible yet beautiful, unexplored, 
and for that reason all the more inviting, a place of shadows. Laura rose and paced the floor, her hands pressed together over her heart. She was excited, her cheeks flushed, a certain breathless exhilaration came and went within her breast, and in place of the intolerable ennui of the last days there came over her a sudden and almost wild animation, and from out her black eyes there shot a kind of furious gaiety. But she was aroused by a step at the door. The messenger stood there, a figure ridiculously inadequate for the intensity of all that was involved in the issue of the hour, a weazened, stunted boy, in a uniform many sizes too large. Laura, seated at her desk, held the note toward him resolutely. Now was no time to hesitate, to temporize. If she did not hold to her resolve now, what was there to look forward to? Could one's life be emptier than hers? Emptier, more intolerable, more humiliating? Take this note to that address, she said, putting the envelope and a coin in the boy's hand. Wait for an answer. The boy shut the letter in his book, which he thrust into his breast pocket, buttoning his coat over it. He nodded and turned away. Still seated, Laura watched him moving toward the door. Well, it was over now. She had chosen. She had taken the leap. What new life was to begin for her tomorrow? What did it all mean? With an inconceivable rapidity, her thoughts began racing through her brain. She did not move. Her hands, gripped tight together, rested upon the desk before her. Without turning her head, she watched the retreating messenger from under her lashes. He passed out of the door, the curtain fell behind him. And only then, when the irrevocableness of the step was all but an accomplished fact, came the reaction. Stop! she cried, springing up. Stop! Come back here. Wait a moment. What had happened? She could neither understand nor explain. Somehow an instant of clear vision had come, and in that instant a power within her, that was herself and not herself, had laid hold upon her will. No, no, she could not. She could not, after all. She took the note back. I have changed my mind, she said abruptly. You may keep the money. There is no message to be sent. As soon as the boy had gone, she opened the envelope and read what she had written. But now the words seemed the work of another mind than her own. They were unfamiliar. They were not the words of the Laura Jadwin she knew. Why was it that from the very first hours of her acquaintance with this man, and in every circumstance of their intimacy, she had always acted upon impulse? What was there in him that called into being all that was reckless in her. And for how long was she to be able to control these impulses? This time she had prevailed once more against that other impetuous self of hers. Would she prevail the next time? And in these struggles was she growing stronger as she overcame, or weaker? She did not know. She tore the note into fragments, and making a heap of them in the pen-tray, burned them carefully. During the week following upon this, Laura found her trouble more than ever keen. She was burdened with a new distress. The incident of the note to Corthell, recalled at the last moment, had opened her eyes to possibilities of the situation hitherto unguessed. 
She saw now what she might be capable of doing in a moment of headstrong caprice. She saw depths in her nature she had not plumbed. Whether these hidden pitfalls were peculiarly hers, or whether they were common to all women placed as she now found herself, she did not pause to inquire. She thought only of results, and she was afraid. But for the matter of that, Laura had long since passed the point of deliberate consideration or reasoned calculation. The reaction had been as powerful as the original purpose and she was even yet struggling blindly, intuitively. For what she was now about to do, she could give no reason. And the motives for this final and supreme effort to conquer the league of circumstances which hemmed her in were obscure. She did not even ask what they were. She knew only that she was in trouble, and yet it was to the cause of her distress that she addressed herself. Blindly she turned to her husband. And all the woman in her roused itself, girded itself, called up its every resource in one last test, in one ultimate trial of strength between her and the terrible growing power of that blind, soulless force that roared and guttered and sucked down here in the midst of the city. She alone, one unaided woman, her only auxiliaries, her beauty, her wit, and the frayed, strained bands of a sorely tried love stood forth like a challenger against Charybdis, joined battle with the cloaca, held back with her slim white hands against the power of the maelstrom that swung the nations in its grip. In the solitude of her room she took the resolve. Her troubles were multiplying. She, too, was in the current, the end of which was a pit, a pit black and without bottom. Once again its grip had seized her. Once again she had yielded to the insidious drift. Now, suddenly aware of a danger, she fought back, and her hands, beating the air for help, turned toward the greatest strength she knew. I want my husband, she cried aloud to the empty darkness of the night. I want my husband. I will have him. He is mine. He is mine. There shall nothing take him from me. There shall nothing take him from me. Her first opportunity came upon a Sunday soon afterward. Jadwin, wakeful all the Saturday night, slept a little in the forenoon, and after dinner Laura came to him in his smoking-room as he lay on the leather lounge trying to read. His wife seated herself at a writing-table in a corner of the room, and by and by began turning the slips of a calendar that stood at her elbow. At last she tore off one of the slips and held it up. Curtis! Well, old girl? Do you see that date? He looked over to her. Do you see that date? Do you know of anything that makes that day different a, a little from other days? It's June 13th. Do you remember what June 13th is? Puzzled, he shook his head. No. No. Laura took up a pen and wrote a few words in the space above the printed figures reserved for memoranda. Then she handed the slip to her husband, who read aloud what she had written. Laura Jadwin's birthday. Why, upon my word, he declared, sitting upright. So it is. So it is. June 13th, of course. And I was beast enough not to realize it. 
Honey, I can't remember anything these days, it seems. But you are going to remember this time, she said. You are not going to forget it now. That evening is going to mark the beginning of... Oh, Curtis, it's going to be a new beginning of everything. You'll see. I'm going to manage it. I don't know how. But you are going to love me so that nothing, no business, no money, no wheat will ever keep you from me. I will make you. And that evening, that evening of June 13th is mine. The day your business can have you. But from six o'clock on, you are mine. She crossed the room quickly and took both his hands in hers and knelt beside him. It is mine, she said. If you love me, do you understand, dear? You will come home at six o'clock, and whatever happens, oh, if all La Salle Street should burn to the ground, and all your millions of bushels of wheat with it, whatever happens, you will not leave me, nor think of anything else but just me, me. That evening is mine, and you will give it to me, just as I have said. I won't remind you of it again. I won't speak of it again. I will leave it to you. But you will give me that evening if you love me. Dear, do you see what I mean? If you love me. No, no, don't say a word. We won't talk about it at all. No, no, please, not, not another word. I don't want you to promise or pledge yourself or anything like that you've heard what i said and that's all there is about it we'll talk of something else uh, by the way have you seen mr cressler lately no he said falling into her mood no i haven't seen charlie in over a month wonder what's become of him i understand he's been sick she told him i met mrs cressler the other day and she said she was bothered about him well What's the matter with old Charlie? She doesn't know herself. He's not sick enough to go to bed, but he doesn't or won't go downtown to his business. She says she can see him growing thinner every day. He keeps telling her he's all right, but for all that she says she's afraid he's going to come down with some kind of sickness pretty soon. Say, said Jadwin, suppose we drop around to see them this afternoon. Wouldn't you like that? I haven't seen him in over a month, as I say. Or telephone them to come up and have dinner. Charlie's about as old a friend as I have. We used to be together about every hour of the day when we first came to Chicago. Let's go over and see him this afternoon and cheer him up. No, said Laura decisively. Curtis, you must have one day of rest out of the week. You are going to lie down all the rest of the afternoon and sleep if you can. I'll call on them tomorrow. Well, all right, he assented. I suppose I ought to sleep if I can. And then Sam is coming up here by five. He's going to bring some railroad men with him. We've got a lot to do. Yes, I guess, old girl, I'll try to get forty winks before they get here. And Laura, he added, taking her hand as she rose to go, Laura, this is the last lap. It's just another month now. Oh, at the outside, six weeks. I'll have closed the corner, and then, old girl, you and I will go somewhere else, anywhere you like. And then we'll have a good time together all the rest of our lives. All the rest of our lives, honey. Goodbye. Now I think I can go to sleep. She arranged the cushions under his head and drew the curtains close over the windows, and went out, softly closing the door behind her. 
and a half hour later when she stole in to look at him she found him asleep at last the tired eyes closed and the arm with its broad strong hand resting under his head she stood a long moment in the middle of the room looking down at him and then slipped out as noiselessly as she had come the tears trembling on her eyelashes Laura Jadwin did not call on the Cresslers the next day, nor even the next after that. For three days she kept indoors, held prisoner by a series of petty incidents. Now the delay in the finishing of her new gowns, now by the excessive heat, now by a spell of rain. By Thursday, however, at the beginning of the second week of the month, the storm was gone and the sun once more shone. Early in the afternoon, Laura telephoned Mrs. Cressler. "'How are you and Mr. Cressler? she asked. "'I'm coming over to take luncheon with you and your husband, if you will let me.' "'Oh, Charlie is about the same, Laura,' answered Mrs. Cressler's voice. "'I guess the dear man has been working too hard, that's all. "'Do come over and cheer him up. "'If I'm not here when you come, you just make yourself at home. "'I've got, I've got to go downtown to see about railroad tickets and all.' I'm going to pack my old man right off to Okanamawak before I'm another day older. Made up my mind to it last night. I don't want him to be bothered with tickets or time cards or baggage or anything. I'll run down and do it all myself. You come right up whenever you're ready and keep Charlie company. How's your husband, Laura Child? Oh, curses as well, she answered. He gets very tired at times. Well, I can understand it. Land's alive, child, whatever you're going to do with all your money. They tell me that Jay has made millions in the last three or four months. <laughs> A man I was talking to last week said his corner was the greatest thing ever known on the Chicago Board of Trade. Well, goodbye, Laura. I'm up whenever you're ready. I'll see you at lunch. Charlie is right here. He says to give you his love. An hour later, Laura's Victoria stopped in front of the Cressler's house, and the little footman descended with the agility of a monkey to stand soldier-like at the steps, the lap-robe over his arm. Laura gave orders to have the Victoria call for her at three, and ran quickly up the front steps. The front entrance was open, the screen door on the latch, and she entered without ceremony. "'Mrs. Cressler,' she called as she stood in the hallway drawing off her gloves. "'Mrs. Cressler, Carrie, have you gone yet?' But the maid, Annie, appeared at the head of the stairs on the landing of the second floor, a towel bound around her head, her duster in her hand. "'Mrs. Cressler has gone out, Mrs. Jadwin,' she said. "'She said you was to make yourself at home, and she'd be back by noon.' Laura nodded, and standing before the hat-rack in the hall, took off her hat and gloves and folded her veil into her purse. The house was old-fashioned, very homelike and spacious, cool, with broad halls and wide windows. In the front library, where Laura entered first, were steel engravings of the style of the seventies, whatnots crowded with shells, Chinese coins, lacquer boxes, and the inevitable sawfish bill. The mantel was mottled white marble, and its shelf bore the usual bronze and gilt clock, decorated by a female figure in classic draperies, reclining against a globe. An oil painting of a mountain landscape hung against one wall, 
and on a table of black walnut with a red marble slab that stood between the front windows was a stereoscope and a rosewood music box the piano an old-style chickering stood diagonally across the far corner of the room by the closed sliding doors and laura sat down here and began to play the mephisto waltzer which she had been at pains to learn since the night corthell had rendered it on her great organ in the art gallery but when she had played as much as she could remember of the music she rose and closed the piano and pushed back the folding doors between the room she was in and the back library a small room where mrs cressler kept her books of poetry as laura entered the room she was surprised to see mr cressler there seated in his armchair his back turned toward her why i didn't know you were here mr cressler she said as she came up to him she laid her hand upon his arm but cressler was dead and as laura touched him the head dropped upon the shoulder and showed the bullet hole in the temple just in front of the ear end of chapter nine